Hello and welcome to this Oxfam podcast. My name is Amy Moran from Oxfam Policy and Practice. In this episode, we're focusing on the role of philanthropy in development and sharing the learnings from a recent loan agreement made to Oxfam, which is considered rather groundbreaking for the sector. The recent allegations of sexual misconduct at Oxfam in Haiti resulted in a difficult financial time for the charity. Institutional donors suspended their funding, including DFID, and the charity needed an urgent solution to keep its critical humanitarian work going. Oxfam is currently responding to 33 emergencies around the world, from the widely covered Yemen conflict, where we have helped nearly 3 million people since the war broke out in 2015, to the less publicized civil war in South Sudan, where we're providing 600,000 people with direct support, such as fresh water and food vouchers. On emergency response alone, Oxfam spends in the region of 10 million pounds per month, and last year supported over 8.6 million people hit by conflict and natural disaster. The Meditor Trust approached Oxfam and offered to underwrite the whole of the DFID funding with a loan, with no repayments expected until donors came back online. The offer eventually led to a loan agreement of £10.6 million set against specific contracts. Most of Oxfam donors have now come back online, but DFID is still suspended. Both parties went through an interesting process to make this loan work, and the approach is still relatively new to the sector and philanthropists. So, I have with me Talal Shakirchi, the head of Meditor Trust, who gave the loan, and Bridie Layden from Oxfam GB's Philanthropy and Partnerships team, who coordinated the process with Talal. We're going to hear from them how it worked, the challenges they faced, and what expectations there are from the agreement. We're hoping this discussion will give you an insight into a very unique agreement. So, thank you both for joining me. I want to um, kick things off with you, Talal, if I may. And can you give us a bit more detail about the offer you made to Oxfam? Meditor Trust made a loan to Oxfam, uh, but the loan was zero risk to Oxfam. So the, the idea was that uh, Oxfam wouldn't, wouldn't have to um, meet any um, financial commitments. Uh, so what we did was said, OK, we'll lend you this money uh, against programmes which various institutional donors have uh, supported in the past and which we all anticipate they, they're likely to, to continue to uh, uh, support. Uh, but that are currently on suspension uh, while they review Oxfam's following the crisis. If those donors ultimately come through and pay for those programmes, then send the money back to Meditor Trust. If they don't, then Meditor Trust will cover them. So in either case, Oxfam won't be the paying the bills. And it's zero interest loan, uh, so there's no, there's no financial cost to Oxfam. And the idea was that it would uh, enable those programmes to continue and you know, for Oxfam to fund them, and and we made the loan over six to cover the, those costs for those programs over a six-month period, with the idea that we would then, at the end of that period, review the situation. It's quite an unusual offer. What made you suggest it? Have you done this before? Uh, I haven't done it before in a uh, philanthropy context. Uh, I've done lots of business loans before, so that it's not unusual for us, uh, for me to to, to be involved in uh, loans. The original suggestion was very early on, so the the. The crisis blew up, as you know, when the Times published a front-page article, which was on February the 9th. That was a Friday, and on the same day, Bridie and um, her colleague Dave Hilliard uh, uh, were contacting me and, and, uh, and no doubt many other donors and, and updating them on the situation and explaining uh, Oxfam's position. Uh, and on the Monday, Dave offered for me to speak to Mark Goldring uh, to learn more about the situation. My instinctive response was, well, you know, I'm sure Mark's got a ton of stuff on his plate and it's, you know, I don't want to take up his time while, he, while he's got a lot of other things to do. 
Um, so there's no need for a discussion unless there's some way we can help. And I gave an example. An example was you might need a loan to uh, bridge the funding gap, which would arise from DFID in particular had already indicated they were going to suspend uh, funding. My idea at that point was simply, well, there's no DFID money. Maybe maybe you need a, a bridging loan um, to, uh, to help. And subsequently, it became clear that other institutional donors were going to suspend as well. Uh, so it became a wider discussion. Going more into the initial offer, Brady, this is where maybe you can come in a little bit as well. As I understand, it was different from what was eventually decided and what was eventually worked out. Tell us a bit about the process behind that. What happened there? So Talal's email, as he said, originally discussed the DFID figure. That was a widely publicised suspension quite early on in the process. When we began to discover the other suspensions and the wider implications, we had to quite quickly work out what contracts could potentially fall into what Talal was hoping to support. So there were a few criteria we discussed. Um, We wanted them to be where humanitarian work, critical work, was happening in countries where we didn't necessarily have a lot of donors funding it and a lot of organisations working there. So if Oxfam were to withdraw, there would be quite immediate and critical negative impact on the people we were working with. But also that the donors in question, if they did come back online, would pay those contracts. So where contracts were signed with donors or they were nearly signed, and the donor had confirmed that they intended to back pay if they were to lift their suspension, then we could minimise the risk in that situation with DFID. The risk was too high against our our reserves are already about £25 million, and we couldn't really take that risk. We couldn't ask Talal to take that risk. But the risk that he did take against the contracts we identified meant that we wouldn't need to take any as a result. So for you, Talal, what are your expectations for this agreement? The, the, perception, the, the, the conception of the loan changed over a period of time. So at first... I was thinking, well, this is just a loan to Oxfam. You know, they'll pay me the money back. It doesn't really cost me anything. You know, zero interest, but that's apart from that, there's no real uh, cost to the trust. And then it became more about risk sharing. So my expectations changed over time, but that was really as as the discussions changed around the loan, as Bridie's explained. I think the other thing that changed was uh, well, actually, the, I think an issue for me during that process or discussion point for me was it was about uh, alignment of incentives. So I was concerned that if we if we said, okay, we'll take all the risk, if these donors don't pay, that it kind of reduced Oxfam's incentive to ensure that and, and follow up with them and, and encourage them to eventually pay. So I always wanted some kind of share of the of, of any of any shortfall to be met by Oxfam. So we were discussing, for example, Oxfam taking twenty percent share. I was keen to have that because of this idea of alignment and you know, with my business hat on I always want everybody aligned as far as possible but we eventually moved to a position where we created a positive incentive so that if a high proportion of the monies are recovered from the donors then Meditor will make a donation to the the cap fund Oxfam's cap fund mm-hmm. so Oxfam still has an incentive to collect although I have to say in practice it the way it's turned out it's felt as if you know Ox, Oxfam has has in any case been keen to restore its reputation anyway with those donors so I probably shouldn't have worried as, as much as I did. Mm. I think the other thing that's been different is than expected is the utilisation has been less than I imagined. When we made the loan, I just imagined the money would just get sucked up straight away by the, by the countries for these various programmes. And in practice, that didn't happen. So some, some of it was taken up straight away, but not as much as I expected. Uh, I think that was 
partly due to the unusual nature of the, the structure. So maybe they, they struggled a little bit just understanding what it meant. Partly I think it was just the delays in getting it done. It took longer than we uh, anticipated to get it done. So, Bradley, do you want to come in on that? Identifying the need, I think, was quite challenging because the organisation was really overwhelmed by the crisis and we didn't know the depth of the um, impact of that coverage. Um, we didn't know from one day to the next everything was changing. So to really identify the contracts at the beginning took some time and was always changing as the loan agreement was being finalised. There was a number of countries involved none of whom had worked with this kind of agreement before. The organisation hasn't worked with philanthropy at this level before. So we're all set up to deal with institutional contracts at that kind of scale. So that whole process took a lot of understanding from all the different parties involved and is still being understood. The delays in the agreement, I think, were challenging because it was sort of two months after the offer that we had actually finalised it. And country programme aren't used to operating at scale without, sounds, without signed contracts. So there's a certain hesitation with what's actually happening. The final thing I would say is the differing perspectives of risk. And you alluded to this, Talal, in your earlier piece. But as an organisation, we don't have the same ability to take risk, perhaps. But also in that particular situation, the risks were very, very high. We didn't know the certainty of the organisation. And given the level of our reserves, our boards were quite nervous about taking risks even for the first quarter which would have, would have been about five million mm. where in a normal situation that would have been quite a large risk to take anyway mm. in the situation we found ourselves in February then that was exacerbated so there were a number of different factors that we're we're all learning from still I think. Can you tell us a bit more about what this loan has actually helped to achieve so far? Yeah of course the loan has been incredibly helpful for the organisation firstly just on a morale boost level for our leadership and for all of our staff and for country team who are finding out about it it's provided that belief that somebody is still wants still trusts us still wants to fund us still believes in the organization and in the future of the organization it's also given immediate securities to countries who have been able to use the loan very quickly and it's also given breathing space to others who've been able to look at their finances properly to see where they need support and where they could use it over the next six months and that's breathing space that, as an organisation, Oxfam wouldn't have been able to provide at that scale. From that perspective, it's been incredibly mm. successful for us. And for you, Talal, you've talked a little bit about expectations going forward, but how have you felt the achievements so far have been? And From my point of view as a funder, it looks very good because not only does it help those programmes continue, which is, of course, number one, and that's great news, helps Oxfam maintain its capacity in those countries which is great, gets rid of any inefficiency of scaling down and back up again. And it's also allowed Oxfam to, to plan ahead with more confidence. So all those things, from my point of view, make it very good bang for the buck, as it were, in terms of impact. And, and you know, as a funder, I feel very good about the impact level being achieved here. And, you know, it, it may well be we get most of the money back anyway. You know, So even if we got none of it back, I would feel you know, some very good they say value in terms of impact has been had. And, you know, Bridie's just mentioned some softer elements like a, the boost to morale within the organisation, which is, you know, just a huge added bonus for me. So I, th I just think I'm very happy with that. One of the advantages we have is that we, we can be much more flexible than some other funders. And it's nice to be able to use that in a way that's helpful. You know, ultimately, the, the underlying feeling here is is the same feeling you get when you 
you know, you have a friend who falls into adversity and you're in a position to be able to help them. It's that feeling. Oxfam's a friend because I've known them for a long time, worked with, worked with Oxfam for a long time, and, and fell on difficult circumstances. I felt the impact for Oxfam was hugely disproportionate to what had happened. What went on in Haiti, none of us would condone, but it's, I, I doubt very much it's the only example that's, that's happened in, in the sector. So, so for all those reasons, I feel very good about it. The, the only thing that perhaps taints that a little bit is those feelings of not having acted quickly enough. So the impact, I think, would have been better if, we, if we'd been able to act more quickly. You know, so it hasn't really been fully utilised. That's a learning. You know, it taints it somewhat, but it doesn't take away from the fact, I think, from the funder side, I think it's a positive, very positive experience. Um, yeah, that brings me on to the next point quite nicely about what are you going to take away from this? What are you going to learn from this? I mean, I think I learned more about Oxfam and how it operates through this process. There's then the more general learnings around this kind of structure. And I think big lesson is just how long it takes, you know, to because it's unusual for the sector, just takes a long time to just get used to the, the concept of a loan and, and, and also the, how loan documentation works. So when we put this loan in place, at about the same time, we were making a business loan uh, of about the same size. That loan took about three days to document and finalise, wow. whereas this one took about five weeks. So, I mean, that's the kind of, you know... So, so when, when I first proposed it, I was assuming it would just, again, be a few days. Um, one learning is just to allow a lot more time. It's my failure to understand that there is a, just a lack of familiarity with how these structures work. So maybe the other thing I could have done better is... Well, certainly if I realised that time issue, I think it would have been better to have maybe have put in a smaller amount in a simpler structure, maybe just a grant, and then spend that time to uh, put in the structure. And I think the other thing was also learning about how an organisation like Oxfam looks at financial data, particularly in countries where there's very fast-changing situations on the ground. It's not like a corporate entity where things tend to be more stable, and so I need to adjust more to that. Um, and understand that better. There's a great deal of trust involved, actually, that we found had come out of that. So when you're asking, and we're asking on behalf of Talal, a lot of information from the ground, from countries that are dealing with really challenging situations, they're balancing different contracts, timings, staffing, resources, in a situation that's constantly changing. So you're asking for information that is time-consuming for them to provide. And as soon as you get it, it's outdated. Mm. So, so it's quite hard to balance how much you're asking of people with what you're wanting them to deliver because the time they're spending on that is obviously reducing their ability to respond. So it's a, I think it's a learning for all of us on what, what our expectations can be. Is there a model here that could come out of this in terms of... I mean, loans do happen in, in the NGO sector from private to, to NGO and NGO to NGO, but... I suppose the difference with this one is the, the speed that it was needed, the scale of it. Is there something that, that you think could come out of this that other NGOs and philanthropists could learn from in terms of how could we use loans more? And thinking more widely about the role of philanthropy in this kind of crisis because they're free to make their own decisions and they can respond in a very agile way mm. and very quickly. So there's a role for them there and there's a role for fundraisers to look at who their supporters are that are closest to them. Because one of the things that we learned was how important it was to be totally transparent with our donors. And as Talal said, we contacted everybody. We also developed a briefing that was very comprehensive so that there were no surprises, so that everybody understood what Oxfam position was and what everything that had been done since Haiti. So that helps inform people in Talal's position about whether they actually are prepared to do something 
and what risks they're prepared to take. But I think there's a need for all parties probably to improve their appetite for risk and their agility if we're to if we're to be able to respond in that kind of situation. It sounds like that's the biggest one of the biggest challenges here was how you operate with risk, how you can you're agile, you're ready to go. We're not. <laughs> we're big. We're not agile. So it sounds like the NGO sector in general could learn a little bit more. And this is not just from flat, but in business in general in that respect. And I think there is a lot of work going on about this, about how can NGOs become more agile, more flexible. But of course, it's difficult because you're in these situations, like conflict situations in particular, where agility just isn't an option. But I was interesting point about you saying, do you, do you feel like you're not accountable? in that respect in, in in our situation it's there's less accountability than for example a large institutional donor would typically have i think though it's not just about accountability it's also about trust i think we had anyway been a long time supporter of oxfam we knew oxfam well so when this blew up it was easy for up from our side to respond very quickly if this were another organization that would be more difficult so we'd have to spend a period of time satisfying ourselves, for example, that there wasn't a fundamental issue with protection and so on. We'd have to get to know individuals within the organisation, get data from the organisation, learn to trust that data, etc. It's just very useful to have an established relationship with some individuals in Oxfam who, we knew, who I knew I could trust when, so when we asked them something and they told, it, they told me the answer. You know, this kind of loan... I think works well in this kind of situation, this particular kind of situation, where in effect there's an anticipation of funding, but it's deferred. If a donor, if a, if somebody like the trust can can loan money that helps those programs continue, that's very helpful. I think because it's it stops a scale down of the programs and then rebuilding them again later, which would be just very disruptive, very expensive. But I think it does also need the the lender to be willing to take a certain degree of risk as well. I guess if, if, if Oxfam can't take that downside risk of the funders not coming through, then other, other organisations, I, I would imagine, would not be able to take it. So it's going to have to be the funder who, do, who does that. Well, I think that's a very good note to end on. Thank you, Talal. Thank you, Bridie, for joining us today. I hope our listeners found that useful. And thanks for tuning in to the Oxfam podcast.